you're going to participate in the undemocratic and feudal spectacle of crowning a king, you may as well go the whole hog and arrest dissenting citizens exercising their lawful right to protest as well. I'm Ash Sarka, and joining me to discuss the crackdown and more is Mike Van Cole. Mike, welcome. Hello, how's it going, Ash? I'm very well. I'm quite into this whole Michael Walker is dead, long live Mike Bancole. Um, but <laughs> just to reassure viewers, Michael Walker is alive and he is well. He's just enjoying his bank holiday in a beer garden somewhere. This weekend saw the crowning of the new king, but amidst the celebrations and security costing an estimated £250 million, we also saw the state clamp down on legal demonstration and arrest peaceful protesters. Republic is a political pressure group arguing for the abolition of the monarchy. Thousands of its supporters gathered in Trafalgar Square on Saturday morning to protest the coronation. They carried large Not My King banners and flags and chanted down with the crown from behind police barricades. Pretty much the most inoffensive and milquetoast protest you can get. Early that morning, six members, including the organisation's CEO, Graham Smith, were arrested in central London at around 7.30am, about two hours before the coronation was set to begin. Smith and other arrestees were collecting drinks and placards for demonstrators. That's when the police swooped in. When a journalist asked one police officer the reason for the arrest, he replied, quote, I'm not going to get into a conversation about that. They are under arrest, end of. Two further Republic protesters were arrested later, and all eight were held for 16 hours before being released without charge. Graham Smith has appeared on Radio 4's Today programme, where he explained what contact the organisation had with the police prior to the event. We were simply unloading uh, placards from our van. Um, we were immediately descended upon by a large number of uh, police officers from the, uh, I believe they're called the TSG, um, a particular group of officers and they immediately stopped us from unloading, detained us, searched us and the van. Um, they told us that they were going to arrest us on uh, suspicion of being equipped to lock on, which was untrue. There was nothing that we had in our possession uh, that could have allowed us to lock on. Um, they then took us and held us for 16 hours. Um, and there was absolutely, they also said they had intelligence, which is untrue. If they did have intelligence, their intelligence officers are either lying or incompetent because there was never any uh, discussion, thought, email, message, anything that suggested any intent to do anything disruptive. And we have had four months of uh, close conversation with the Metropolitan Police in which we have explained to them exactly what we're going to do, where we're going to be. We told them that we, we how many placards we had, what they would say, that we would have flags, that we would have amplification equipment. The amplification equipment was then uh, seized and we were told that we would be arrested. Uh, my colleagues were told they'd be arrested if they used megaphones. The whole thing was a deliberate attempt to disrupt and uh, diminish our protest. What, in order what were to you, when it came to it then, what were you intending to do? So you didn't have megaphones. What were you intending to do? No, we had megaphones. We had amplifiers as well. We intended to uh, be in large numbers on Trafalgar Square near the procession route, as well as having smaller groups along the procession route. We were very clear with the Metropolitan Police about that over the last four months. And they repeatedly said right up until Friday that they had no concerns about our protest plans. They were well aware of what we were going to do and they would engage with us and not disrupt us. So they have repeatedly lied about their intentions. And I believe that they had every intention of arresting us prior to doing so. In the week leading up to the coronation, the government rushed through their Public Order Act into law. 
The legislation contains many new restrictions on protest. It makes locking on a criminal offence and extends stop and search powers. And it allows the police to break up protests defined as disruptive before they've even begun. On Times Radio, Smith was asked about the act's role in the Republic arrests. People saying that it, you were arrested under this the new Public <coughs> Order Act, which was introduced by the government to, to did actually more deal with groups like Just Stop Oil blocking motorways and so on. Are you clear that that is uh, what you were arrested under? I believe so, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they don't seem entirely clear what they're doing, to be perfectly honest. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it was an unlawful arrest. Uh, I understand from someone else that um, they're now rowing back on that and saying it wasn't that legislation. So um, I think they have uh, got themselves really confused and um, uh, mixed up as to what exactly they were doing. But uh, to my mind, it was very clear that this was a premeditated decision. They had absolutely no grounds whatsoever on that uh, morning to even detain us, let alone arrest us. Um, and I think that they had already decided the day before, or whenever it was, that that's what they were going to do in order to disrupt our protest. And, uh, you know, eight of us, uh, six of us on the ground there and two others later spent 16 hours in uh, a prison cell uh, or uh, police cell um, and are now on bail for having done absolutely nothing wrong. And that is a clear affront to democracy. And I would, I've gone as far as saying we no longer have the right to protest. It is now a freedom contingent on permission from senior officers and politicians and clearly the politicians have been putting pressure on the police so there needs to be a pretty serious uh, look at exactly who made what decisions and how this came to be. Republic supporters weren't the only protesters arrested on Saturday. On the mall near Buckingham Palace 13 Just Stop Oil protesters were arrested and carried away by the police. Their crime? Wearing Just Stop Oil t-shirts and carrying the organization's flags. None were carrying any devices capable of locking on or causing disruption. Later, four more activists and filmmaker Rich Felgate were arrested near Downing Street, but not before Felgate captured the event on film. Okay, for the meantime, it's right, uh, 9.15. Um, I'm arresting you for... Uh, OK, for... Yeah. Arresting a journalist. OK. Can we just... Uh, I'm not saying that's not wrong, but let's just... Double-check that. Yeah, yeah. That's what they've, they're suggesting anyway. I'm holding a banner. I'm being arrested for my actions. I am simply holding a banner in Westminster and I'm being arrested for my actions. There's a journalist with a press pass next to me who is being arrested for his actions. At this time, okay, you can put that away, please, sir. Put it away. Also arrested were around 14 activists from the group Animal Rising. Earlier this year, they disrupted the Grand National Horse Race. The Animal Rights Group was holding a non-violence training workshop in Hackney, miles from the coronation, when its members were taken into custody. And in Soho, three members of Westminster Council's nightlife safety team were arrested for handing out rape whistles to partygoers. Taken into custody at 2am on Saturday morning, they were held for 15 hours before being released. Caroline Russell is a Green Party member of the London Assembly and she chairs the city's police committee. On Radio 4's Today programme, she was asked about the Soho arrests. We also know that members of the City of Westminster's night safety team, volunteers who are handing out rape alarms, were amongst those arrested. And the Met has said um, that that's because they thought that they had received intelligence that individuals were planning to use rape alarms to disrupt the procession. But presumably it wouldn't have been hard to establish that these people were acting on behalf of the council. 
These people were literally wearing high-vis vests with the Metropolitan Police logo on. These are volunteers working for Westminster Council on a Night Stars program, which is done in collaboration with the Metropolitan Police. So it, it seems absolutely extraordinary that those people who were volunteering, they were out there handing out flip-flops to people who could no longer walk in their high heels because they'd had a bit too much to drink, and handing out rape alarms to help people get home safely. Um, you know, it just seems extraordinary that they got caught up in the Met's safety net. And, you know, how would you make that, you know, it, yeah, it just, it just feels very odd. Despite the fact that the arrests were made without any evidence that demonstrators were planning to disrupt the event, the police are unapologetic. Ken Marsh is chairman of the Metropolitan Police Federation. Appearing on Radio 4's Today programme, he said this. As the police of this country, we police without fear or favour, as you well know, and we have to take into consideration everything, everything that at that moment is put in front of us. And if individuals intend to cause uh, an incident which will affect others near them, around them, or part of their actions, then we take action to deal with it. But them. isn't that what that protesting is? What Protesting can take place in this country, as you well know, but it's to the level at which you want to perform that protesting that we have to balance and deal with what is put in front of us impartially. That is what was done. A police officer would only arrest someone if they had the powers to do so, because as you well know, the transparency in this country is greater than any other in the world in terms of being able to investigate what took place after. So therefore, I can assure you my colleagues were lawful in what they were doing and what was put in front of them made them take that action. Earlier today, I spoke to Mick Wright, the journalist reporting from the protests who broke the story about council workers being arrested for handing out rape alarms. I began by asking him about those comments from Ken Marsh that you just heard. Justin Webb allowed Ken Marsh to say a number of things that we already know are uh, are untrue. Um, we know that the Metropolitan Police regularly arrest people illegally because there have been many, many payouts for illegal arrests. Um, in the course of uh, these arrests over the weekend, you know, um, there were people who were not told what they were arrested for. That is an illegal arrest to start with. You, in order to to generate your defense. And in order to be able to speak in a police interview, you need to know what you were arrested for. And you need to know if they have an intent to charge you. And if they don't do that, then that is an illegal arrest. The BBC allowed Ken Marsh to talk all, uh, all over the shop and basically lie. It's also worth remembering that police aren't allowed to be unionized. So police federations are just a, another offshoot of the police. You know, they are just another official spokesman for the police. And what's happened here is the Met too cowardly to put up serving officers or, you know, officers that were involved in the operation, put up Ken Marsh, a man whose entire job is to just do propaganda for the police. Police were involved in illegal arrests. Uh, they acted like a gang. There was what there was a few years back, might have been even more than a few years back. There was a Met um, police poster that said, our gang is tougher than your gang. That is their mentality. Most people were arrested and now have been released 
pending further investigation. And wouldn't you know it that pending further investigation involves the seizure of their phones, uh, which, of course, is a way to disrupt uh, disrupt activist networks and also to make it very hard for people to appear on the media. Yesterday, LBC said, well, we tried to get Republic to appear, but no one was answering their phones. Do you know why? They're in the Metropolitan Police's hands. That's why. So they they cut the head off the Republic protest. They harassed Just Stop Oil. They attacked Animal Rising. They arrested uh, people who were just there to help with women's safety, which is really special given the fact that we have had two um, prominent cases about um, uh, serial rapists in the Met, one of whom murdered Sarah Everard. So the Met trying to stop women being safe in London is a real PR triumph for, a, you know, um, a force that continues to do this stuff and to say, well, nothing happened, but we, we arrested them all. So there were no nothing happened. You can't then, you know, it's it, it's a post hoc ergo propter hoc because we did this, this, you know, this other thing didn't happen. It's unprovable. The Met are a danger to our society and they proved it once again. There is not even rights here. Even being like even being a journalist, these people, um, pathetic journalists in our industry who spent the day just tweeting about the TV coverage and not actually doing any journalism. They've shown us up because if you're out there doing real journalism, you felt a threat that you might get lifted purely for reporting on what was happening. The police really wanted no one to look at it. And that's why a lot of people were sent out to Elephant and Castle, but not just Elephant and Castle, about 15 minutes away from the tube station. And the only journalist who, who attended, I attended the whole time, someone from the PA news desk came, an ITV crew came for a little while, and Sky sent a cameraman who didn't know why he was there. And that was it. Graham Smith from Republic said that his organisation had been in close conversations with the Metropolitan Police for four months before the coronation. So they were well aware of how many placards they had and what they said and what audio equipment they were planning on bringing. So what do you think happened? Was it just the case that there were some overzealous TSG who really wanted to get stuck in and in the mix? or? Was there something maybe a bit more devious afoot where they were lulled into a false sense of security and the orders to arrest them came from the top? It was a stitch up. It was an ambush. Uh, I've said this. I said this to Republic people on the day when in our many hours of standing outside the police station in, um, in Elephant Castle, they cannot trust the police in terms of trying to cooperate in that way. Now, if they don't cooperate at all, they'll be accused of plotting. But I think they were a little too cooperative. Um, it was a stitch up. The TSG were doing were f- just following orders, to coin a phrase, uh, while trying to avoid a um, being accused of being Gary Lineker. Um, yeah, they, 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 it was deliberate. And there, uh, I, I talked to, you know, and you know, of course, you know, this, like, you try to have two sources for any claim. I, had from nearly double figures uh, people telling me that bronze commanders, that the on the ground commanders were telling their police uh, that were under their command, if you've got any doubt, just arrest them. We can always de-arrest them later. So the policy was arrest first, ask questions later. And what was also happening, there were many illegal arrests because many people who came out, I said, uh, and everyone was being kept in for about 14 hours. It turned out that Republic uh, were ended up being in there for near 18 hours, partly because they wanted Graham not to be able to appear on the 10 o'clock news. So suddenly around the time 
that the 10 o'clock news had been broadcast, things sped up and suddenly all the Republic members were released. Uh, JSO were kept in a lot longer, just up oil. Uh, clearly, uh, they were being treated much worse than Republic. Um, there was a class element in involved, definitely. JSO are treated uh, as, as much worse than Republic. Um, yeah, it was a stitch up. It was a plan. Um, the bronze commanders were, were being told by silver and gold. I mean, gold is, you know, gold is the one person running the whole operation. They were being told crackheads go in hard, uh, have zero tolerance. So yeah, th this was a, the, the protest in, uh, in Trafalgar Square was approved and then it was unapproved because they knew they would, is un would all definitely unapprove it. Clive Lewis, um, the MP, the left wing, Labour MP, who is my constituency MP, was uh, told not to appear at the rally because there had been security threats. It's my contention, and the Met refused to uh, say otherwise. It's my contention that um, those threats were made up by the police to prevent Clive from speaking. All the amplifiers that would have been required for him to speak were uh, banned anyway and uh, seized. So, yeah, it was a stitch up. And anyone who thinks it wasn't a stitch up is not paying attention to the evidence of their eyes and ears. We saw widespread use of preemptive arrests back in 2011 for the wedding of Prince William to Kate Middleton. And many of those arrests were of people who were associated with the organised left in some way. So how much of what we've seen on Coronation Day is a reflection of the Public Order Act, which was rushed through in time for King Charles's special day? And how much of it is to do with the idea that this is just the standard operating procedure for any royal event these days. Uh, I don't think it's about royal events anymore. I think um, I think it, this is going to be standing operating uh, for events. Full stop. Uh, I was at university with Wes Streeting, uh, the uh, Shadow Health Secretary. We weren't at the same college, but I, I was on many protests. He was on. Um, he might have had his political career stymied if these. Um, this th these laws were in place because we protested hard against the tuition fees. We um, we were on a lot of, and we were on anti Iraq war marches, all kinds of stuff. And um, things that were allowed then would not be allowed now. Uh, what the Blair government did to suppress protest and the Thatcher government before them has just gone supercharged here. I'm concerned for journalists because I was a nuisance to the police. I annoyed the police. Many many police officers were annoyed by me at all levels uh, over Saturday and Sunday. And um, they could have arrested me for that. I don't wish to give them any ideas, but the law is very loosely drafted. So basically, the biggest threat to I said this on Sky News and I say it again here, the biggest threat to um, to free speech in this country are is the Conservative Party, the Labour Party and the Metropolitan Police. And um, it's not trans people or left wing people, certainly not as the, Sonia Soda wrote in The Observer that it was the left that have caused this. Uh, once again, our incredible powers of um have done things we didn't even know we were doing. The right and, and the liberals are basically given us a situation now where protest is illegal. And I would say to the right, wait, do you remember when the Countryside Alliance kept getting lifted and, and nicked under the Blair era? It could happen to your pressure groups um, and your campaign groups when there is a different kind of government. And you'll moan and whine about it then, but you gave us this. This is the inheritance we have that protest is de facto illegal in this country now. That was journalist Mick Wright speaking to me earlier today. So, does the government have any regrets about the 52 protesters arrested over the weekend? Apparently not. The BBC's Laura Koonsberg asked Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser whether she thought the right to protest was safe. 
some activists and campaigners and the Liberal Democrats and some other politicians worry that actually the general right to protest is being eroded. Uh, well, I regularly see protests. I mean, obviously, I work in the Houses of Parliament. And I walk through a protest uh, or two or maybe three every day uh, along uh, Parliament. I think that is a fundamental right. We do need to make sure we get that balance right. And I do think it was right to bring in legislation. The police asked us for more powers. Mm. People's day-to-day -day lives were being affected. And I think it's absolutely right that we stand up for those people who want to go about their daily business. And you back the action the police took yesterday? So the police, as you know, Laura, are operationally independent uh, and they will have made tough calls yesterday. I mean, you will have seen uh, that there were large protests taking place. The police were aware of those protests and they let them happen. Mm -hmm. But they will have made operational decisions on a case-by-case -case basis as to what steps they should have taken. And I know that they took into account, and I think they were quite right to take into account, the context of the event as a, as a whole. We were on the global stage. There were 200 foreign dignitaries in the UK, in London, at an event. Uh, millions of people uh, watching, hundreds of thousands of people at the scene. Mm. I think it was really important that they took that into account okay. when take, making their decision. So your right to protest depends on how many people were watching. Commander Karen Findlay led the Met Police's coronation operation. In a statement, she said this. We absolutely understand public concern following the arrests we made. Protest is lawful and it can be disruptive. We have policed numerous protests without intervention in the build-up to the coronation and during it. Our duty is to do so in a proportionate manner in line with relevant legislation. We also have a duty to intervene when protest becomes criminal and may cause serious disruption. This depends on the context. The coronation is a once-in-a-generation event, and that is a key consideration in our assessment. A protest involving large numbers has gone ahead today with police knowledge and no intervention. Mike, why aren't establishment media outlets more angry about the fact that journalists were arrested on coronation day and legitimate lawful protests, which had been planned in consultation with the police, ended up facing arrest? I think a lot of this is to do with the stance that, you know, mainstream media, established media have chosen to adopt during the coronation, which is, this is not the time to raise concerns about the royal family. You know, it's the time to just, you know, honour the royal family, you know, let's enjoy this, bank holiday, let's have a good time. And that just feels weird. This is the coronation of an unelected head of state. Now is as good a time as any, if you are someone who's a Republican, to voice those concerns. And I, and I think it's really weird that the media seems to have adopted this stance. But thinking bigger picture here, you know, the establishment, establishment media, they're part of the establishment. And I think the establishment and, and what republicanism means to them is, you know, republicanism won't just come overnight. It'll be part of a wider movement that challenges the structures that exist in society today and trying to reimagine a more fair, inexorable society. At the moment, the structures of society that exist favor establishment media and I actually think that republicanism poses a threat to some of the benefits they enjoy because that movement is part of a wider movement to reimagine Britain and reimagine what's possible in Britain so I think there's a vested interest in the establishment media to not shake up too many trees and not to ruffle too many feathers you know this one to let's, let's get on with this weekend you know God save the king and all of that stuff and you know they maybe later on down the line we can raise some concerns about the king but let him have his weekend but but no this is the best time for Republicans to raise concerns about the royal family. 
And it's an absolute disgrace that they were, you know, not afforded the opportunity. And yes, a lot of this does speak to the Conservatives' wider image in terms of a crackdown on protests. Absolutely, it does. I do think social media's you know, response to this has spoken about their vested interest in not ruffling too many feathers and just carrying on with business as usual. Yeah, I've got to agree with you. I think that the general approach from media is, well, lots of people enjoy the coronation. So people that don't are in a minority and they're a nuisance to everybody else, which I think is a really unhealthy way to view the democratic right to protest. We've already spoken about the new Public Order Act passed by the Tories. It has empowered the police to clamp down on political protest. Now that it's looking likely that the Labour Party will be in power after the next election, a reasonable question is, what would they do about these draconian laws? This was put to Shadow Foreign Secretary David Lammy on LBC, who said this. This repeal question, you know, you get this a lot in politics. We can't come into office picking through all the conservative legislation and repealing. It would take up so much parliamentary time. We need a positive agenda. The primary thing is cost of living, inflation, and getting growth back into this country. Keir Starmer's been right to prioritise it. And in the last item, we were talking about the local elections. It's clear that people were voting uh, on that basis. Andrew Gwynn is Shadow Minister for Public Health. He was asked the same question on Sky News. You voted against the Public Order Act. Do you think Labour should then repeal the legislation if, if Labour get into power? Well, I think we have to look very closely at uh, this legislation because it's not just about the right to protest. It's also got um, uh, fundamental uh, issues with the right to strike as well that we need to take a very clear look at. So uh, I think that the next Labour government will look very carefully at this piece of legislation. But looking carefully at it doesn't, doesn't mean anything, does it? It doesn't mean you're going to reverse it. Well, we need to see how it's working uh, and if it's not working in the way that the government says it's intended to work, then uh, that's something that needs addressing. Uh, But uh, obviously, um, what happened over the coronation weekend, uh, the police will investigate and no doubt report back to the Mayor of London. Mike, obviously, politicians can't just make up policy on the hoof. And if they don't know what Keir Starmer wants, they can't say, okay, he'll definitely repeal it. But those are two really different tones struck by David Lammy and Andrew Gwynn. Andrew Gwynn is saying, we're going to have a look at it for these reasons. This is the implication of the legislation. And David Lammy is like, oh, it might just be a big old waste of parliamentary time. What do you think explains the difference between their two responses? I'm not so sure. I I guess they don't actually know what they want to do about, you know, the rights to protest. And I actually think it reveals that Labour don't really care that much about the right to protest, because for me, it should be something right to the top of their political agenda. I think Lamy's response was crushingly kind of what I expected it to be. You know, it's just crushingly predictable, you know, this idea that we've got bigger fish to fry, the cost of living crisis. Look, the cost of living crisis is clearly of huge importance for voters, for people. Of course it is. But I think, you know, if you're a left-wing party, you know, prioritising and protecting the fundamental right to protest should be right at the top of your agenda, especially if you are claiming to be pursuing a positive political agenda. I, I would have, you know, protecting the right to protest right at the top of that. So I think Labour's stance, this kind of mixed messaging we're getting from them, just reveals a party that don't actually have this kind of clear idea of what they want to do when it comes to the right to protest. And I think it reveals a lot about, you know, what Starmer's plans for this Labour Party are and their general direction of travel. I think, you know, Lamy's, Lamy's kind of, you know, his, his what he said on the radio was peak, you know, Keir Starmer 
labor messaging is so condescending it's we got bigger fish to fry messaging of these you know kind of speaks the idea these kind of like woke lefties are bringing up nonsense again and we want to focus on the big issues of the day and it's just really frustrating and i think you know what do labor stand for because if you don't if you fail to you know criticize and, and repeal the conservatives most repressive policies what on earth does that positive agenda you speak of looks like i i don't understand what kind of positive agenda doesn't include possessing the fundamental right to protest Let's move on to our next story. The government has made it clear that you can say what you like about the monarchy, so long as you say it quietly. But one Tory MP thinks they haven't gone far enough. Lee Anderson wants to bring back the death penalty and thinks you can get a nutritious meal for 30 pence. He's also a fan of free speech. He told Parliament that, quote, we fought and won a war to protect our freedoms and freedom of speech, to my mind, is the most important freedom that we have. And in the past, he wrote this. Free speech is a fundamental part of any civilised democracy and no one should be silenced if they think there are important issues that need to be raised. No one should be silenced. Unless, that is, they're speaking out against a hereditary monarch appointed by God. During the coronation, he posted this on social media. Not my king! If you do not wish to live in a country that has a monarchy, the solution is not to turn up with your silly boards. The solution is to emigrate. Mike, why do so many right-wingers chuck their commitment to free speech out the window the minute it's about the monarchy? It's classic Lee Anderson, I have to say. This is is the same Lee Anderson that refused to watch the England team play at Euro 2020 because the footballers dare to take the knee. And it's really funny because he's one of those right-wing politicians that claims to be a defender of free speech you know these woke lefties these snowflakes they are attacking our our right to to free speech but then when it's convenient for him he you know completely ignores the idea of free speech it's like well if you don't like the royal family leave this country and it's like well aren't you the guy that speaks about free speech and you know people being allowed to say what they want to say so it's really bizarre i think it just speaks to the idea that these people don't actually care about free speech they want to be offensive and say at times racist and problematic things and face no repercussions for that. And whenever anyone says something they, they don't agree with, both people should be you know, repressed, they should be placed in prison, or they should leave this country. So they don't care about free speech, they care about the right to say whatever the hell they want to say. And others who have contradictory views should be silenced immediately. I mean, I also think he's quite crude. So he sort of sees it as his job to say the most reactionary thing possible. And then dress it up as this kind of authentic voice of the white working class thing. So he'll be like, bring back hanging. It's what real decent working class folk want. And he'll say, cancel culture. That's why you're alienating decent working class folk. And then when it comes to the monarchy, he's like, you should all emigrate because republicanism is antithetical to what working class people really want. So it's a way of using a particular identity to just ventriloquize the most reactionary thing possible, whether that's driving a moral panic about council culture or whether it's about, uh, you know, constraining and curtailing the right to protest. Next story. California's reparations task force has approved recommendations that could mean that black people in the state receive hundreds of billions of dollars in cash payments. The panel of elected officials, academics and lawyers was set up in the wake of George Floyd's murder at the hands of police in Minneapolis. Since 2020, they've been conducting research into how the legacies of slavery, segregation, sharecropping and redlining might be addressed. 
And what they've worked out is this. Every black Californian who can trace their ancestry back to an enslaved or free black person living in the United States prior to the end of the 19th century could be eligible for direct cash payments based on how long they'd lived in the state. So a black person who'd lived in California between the 1930s and the 1970s, when the practice of preventing people in black neighborhoods from taking out mortgages and owning homes was most prevalent, could be entitled to nearly $150,000. That's based on a figure of $3,366 for each year they'd lived during the era where redlining was commonplace. The Reparations Task Force has recommended that black people should receive $2,352 for each year of residency in California between 1971 and 2020 in order to address the harms of over-policing and incarceration during the decades-long war on drugs. So, theoretically, a 71-year-old black person could be entitled to $1.2 million in restitution for a lifetime of being discriminated against. And polling from Pew Research shows just how split Americans are on the issue of reparations. Only 18% of white people support reparations for the descendants of enslaved people, compared to 77% of black people. And support for reparations is strongest amongst people on lower incomes rather than higher ones. That's not really surprising when you consider the role that race plays in American wealth inequalities. This is from the New York Times. The median wealth of black households in the United States is $24,100, compared to $188,200 for white households, according to the most recent Federal Reserve Board Survey of Consumer Finances. In California, a recent report from the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California found for every $1 earned by white families, black families earn 60 cents. The results of disparities in, among other things, education and discrimination in the labor market. We've got racial disparities in wealth here in the UK too. But what makes the US unique is just how much wealth and land was actively taken away from black people in the decades following Reconstruction. Land ownership for black Americans peaked in the early 20th century, but discriminatory lending practices and forced sales has seen it decline ever since. According to one study, in 1910, black farmers owned more than 16 million acres of land, according to experts. In 2017, when the most recent agricultural census was done, that figure was just 4.7 million acres, about 0.5% of all farmland. Over the course of the 20th century, black farmers in the United States lost roughly $326 billion worth of acreage. So what supporters of reparations argue is that direct cash payments aren't a form of compensation. Instead, they should be considered the return of stolen wealth. Now, the proposals from the reparations task force aren't necessarily going to be implemented. They'd have to be approved by the state legislature first. And while the task force have outlined what they think are the appropriate sums of money to deal with the impacts of structural racism in areas like housing, education and the justice system, they haven't said how they're going to pay for it. All in all, their proposals could end up costing the state of California over $500 billion. And last January, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that the state faced a $22.5 billion deficit, down from a $100 billion surplus a year ago. The Reparations Task Force represents the biggest step towards financial restitution for Black Americans, whose lives have been materially impacted by racism. But 
Other movements for reparations have focused on policymaking rather than direct payments to black people. In 2021, officials in Evanston, Illinois, a Chicago suburb, approved $10 million in reparations in the form of housing grants. More recently, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors has expressed support for reparations that could offer several million dollars. And in nearby Hayward, California, city officials are hearing proposals for reparations of land taken from black and Latino families in the 1960s. Meanwhile, CARICOM, an organization of 15 Caribbean states, created a reparations commission and issued a 10-point plan for reparatory justice. They called for a formal apology from European governments for slavery and colonization, a land development plan and debt cancellation. And look, if that sounds unreasonable to you, just remember that our government only finished off paying the debt from giving reparations to slave owners in 2015. Mike, I'm really interested to hear what you think about these proposals, particularly the fact that they take the form of direct cash payments. What do you make of that idea? Look, I think there's a strong argument for reparations when you look at the legacy of slavery and segregation in the US and the effect it's had on black Americans even to this day. And we see black Americans living with systemic racism and huge issues with policing, which is obviously one of the big issues to we often hear about over here in the UK when it comes to race and racism in the US. My issues with this policy would be the idea of it being direct cash payments, partly because I think we could, we can imagine reparations as a more useful mechanism for justice. And what I mean by that is not just handing cash to, to black families, but actually maybe investing in some social social schemes, you know, some scholarships for, for students to attend college maybe, you know, the, the scheme in Illinois seems like a really good one in terms of housing grants as well. So actually not just handing cash, but, you know, helping black families who face disproportionate inequalities in different sectors of society when it comes to housing and education. That's a really important way of bridging the wealth gap that exists between black American families and white American families. I think that would be more useful. I think I also wonder what role class might play in this, because it's something we've spoken about before, Ash, like, but... There is this a black middle class in the US and, you know, are they going to be paid the same amount as maybe a black working class family? You know, how does that work? So I think there are some questions, but look, I know there's some people who oppose reparations in general and, and those people will say, well, look, I didn't own any slaves. Why am I being held accountable for this or all of this sort of nonsense? I don't think that's a stronger, robust argument, partly because, you know, yes, you didn't own slaves, but federal governments allowed slave ownership to happen and as a result of this they should you know be forced to to pay pay back for this so i don't think that's a strong or, or, or airtight argument at all and i think there is a need for reparations but my my big question is the form reparations take and you know trying to find the most progressive and useful form of reparations for black americans i'm really i'm really with you on the idea that reparations aren't about the wrongs of the past they're really about addressing the injustices of the present but for me i think one of the things about this idea which makes me a little bit uncomfortable with the framing of it is you've got direct cash payments going to people because of the war on drugs for instance but the war on drugs is still ongoing in California. You don't have the decriminalization of psychoactive substances. And that's a part of the illicit economy, which disproportionately drags black and Hispanic individuals into the criminal justice system. So for me, there is this something, something intensely odd about the idea of, okay, we're going to issue reparations from 1971 to 2020, but 
the war on drugs is still ongoing. But I think this is a really interesting set of measures. It's a story that we'll be keeping an eye on as well. So let's see how it does at the state legislature. Let's move on to our next story. Suella Braverman's Rwanda scheme has been criticised by human rights organisations, charities, left-wing activists, and even a few members of the Tory party. But now, a pretty massive establishment figure has come out against it too. General Sir Richard Dannett is the former head of the British Army and now a crossbench peer. Speaking to The Independent, he said this about Braverman's approach to asylum seekers. The government are entitled to bear down on people coming on small boats who are simply seeking a better life. Whether sending people to Rwanda is the right policy, I have my doubts. It seems to be aimed at deterring others from coming because there is a strong sanction against them. I'm uncomfortable with it. Dannett sits on the all-party parliamentary group on war crimes, and part of its remit is looking at the perpetrators of the 1994 Rwanda genocide and its aftermath. He went on to say this. I've been to Rwanda, and the shadow of the genocide there in the 1990s hangs over the country. It's ruled with a very firm hand by Paul Kagame. It's got a pretty dark history, and it's not the sort of environment I would put people from Syria and elsewhere in the world into. In recent weeks, Braverman has enjoyed linking refugees to, quote, heightened levels of criminality, while claiming that they have values, quote, at odds with British values. This was Dannett's view of her tactics. It's somewhat surprising that Suella Braverman is persisting with an unpopular policy. I fail to understand why the Home Secretary is continuing to run down the remaining political capital of Rishi Sunak's government. General Dannett wasn't the only establishment figure to pan the Home Secretary's attitude to asylum seekers. Michael Heseltine was Deputy Prime Minister under John Major. He told The Independent this... This is not the Conservative Party I joined, and there is a very nasty flavour of commentary beginning to develop. I was deeply concerned at the implication that somehow there is a different sort of human being that is seeking refuge in this country. Mike, people who would normally be quite ideologically aligned to the Conservative Party are criticising the Rwanda policy. Do you think that's the kind of thing that might keep Suella Braverman awake at night? I don't think it is. I think the Conservative Party are committed to the Rwanda policy. It's, it's their hallmark policy, I believe, and it's something that they're not going to back down on just because they're receiving some criticism from some people who would otherwise be sympathetic to them. And look, we need to understand that Rwanda policy is the the, the end point of years and years of anti-immigration politics that has been reproduced by both the left and the right. Just think about your know, 1968 Commonwealth Act that was passed by the Labour Party. That was a hugely problematic piece of legislation, and it was profoundly racist. We, we can think to more recent times in a hostile environment that was, you know, pushed by the Conservative government, Cameron's Conservative government, and later continued by successive Conservative governments. It's an ongoing hostile environment, by the way, that's it's worth mentioning. But that was also a problematic and racist policy that had huge effects on, you know, Black families, Black communities, the Windrush generation, and the Windrush scandal is a legacy of that. So I don't think the Conservative Party are going to stop anytime soon when it comes to marginalising asylum seekers and refugees. That's their modus operandi in 2023, and it's a continuation of their past approach to immigration. They don't care about these dissenting voices. I think they would call these voices snowflakes and the woke left who are trying to take them down. So I think the Conservatives are committed to this, but this is all part of a, a bigger picture 
both parties, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, when they've been in power, both parties have pursued quite problematic approaches to immigration policy. And this is arguably the most egregious policy we've seen passed by the government or attempt to be passed by government. And it's just a continuation of, of, of a long history. I was wondering what you thought about the nature of General Dannett's objection to the Rwanda scheme, because he's saying, I don't like the fact it's a deterrent and Rwanda is an inappropriate country to send asylum seekers to. But I don't know. What, what do you think that that is a principled objection to it or does it leave something to be desired? I take exception with his objection that, you know, Rwanda is this country in the shadows of genocide and it's not appropriate sending asylum seekers there. It's not appropriate sending asylum seekers anywhere when they come to seek refuge in the UK. I think, you know, lots of criticism of the policy, whether it's on the Labour side and Labour, you know, they, they criticise it as being unworkable. And we have, you know, this criticism of, you know, well, you know, the shadows of genocide are in Rwanda. It's not a safe place to send your asylum seekers. The focus should be on the inhumane and racist nature of this policy, not the fact that people are going to be sent to Rwanda or that it's unworkable. And when we lose sight of the fact this is a deeply racist policy, it's inhumane in every single sense. When we lose sight of that, we can actually be too soft in our criticism of this government. They need to be reminded that this is a hugely racist piece of legislation. It's hugely problematic. And those are the reasons why we have objection to it, not because people are being sent to Rwanda. It wouldn't make it any better people were being sent to a beach in Hawaii, you know, people should not be sent away while their claims are being processed. That's not how we should do immigration. If you want a, a, a safe system, you know, a good and fair immigration system, it's about providing safe and legal routes for people so they don't have to cross over um, on, on these boats. That's the focus. That should be the focus for us, for people on the left. The focus should be you know, on, on, on pushing the government to provide safe routes and focus on the inhumane nature of this policy. Let's move on to our next story. As the dust settles on the Tories' disastrous local elections performance last week, pundits and politics nerds alike are now focused on what this all might mean in a general election. The Conservatives did even worse than expected, losing over a thousand seats. But while Labour's gains were good, they didn't reflect the massive poll lead they've maintained over the government in national voting intention. So how might this all play at the ballot box? Colin Rallings and Michael Thrasher looked at the results from the local elections and put together a projection for a general election. We have examined 4.2 million local election votes cast in 2000 wards not subject to boundary changes. We have extrapolated from them to calculate a national equivalent vote of how the parties would have fared if these elections had taken place in every part of the country. This puts the Tories on 29%, below both last year's local elections and the comparable contests in 2019. It is their lowest point on this measure since 2013. Labour is on 36%, up five points on 2019, but surprisingly only a marginal improvement on a year ago. This equates to a near 10 percentage point swing from the Tories to Labour since December 2019. Repeated at a general election on a uniform swing, these figures would lead to a hung parliament, with Labour comfortably as largest party, but still short of a majority. There's obviously some caveats here. People vote differently in general elections than they do in locals. And in 2004, Labour were 11 points behind in the locals before coming back to win the main event. But if Rallings and Thrasher are right, this would mean we're on course for Labour to form a government, 
but they would rely on votes from other parties in order to get legislation through Parliament. There are a couple of ways that Labour might want to navigate a possible hung Parliament. There's a confidence and supply arrangement like Theresa May had with the DUP, where they get the votes of MPs from the Lib Dems, the Greens or the SNP in return for some policy concessions. Or there's the 2010 option, go into a formal coalition. That means that MPs from other parties would take on junior ministerial positions. And with the whiff of coalition hanging in the air and fresh from nicking seats off the Tories in their southern heartlands, Ed Davey of the Liberal Democrats popped up on the BBC to talk to Laura Koonsberg. Let's talk about then your relationship with the Conservatives because on this week's uh, numbers, it suggests that Labour would be overwhelmingly the biggest party but wouldn't be able to necessarily govern on their own. It might be a hung parliament. Um, would you... You've clearly ruled out working with the Conservatives under Boris Johnson, but would you consider working with Rishi Sunak in some kind of coalition? No. Uh, I spent all my life uh, fighting the Conservatives. Um, and well, you I, were in coalition with them for five years. Uh, you I, sat around the Cabinet yeah, table but, but with Laura, David Cameron. I, and I fought them every day during that period, let me tell you. But, but you, were, um, you were on the same side. You were part uh, of that government. You can fight uh, within a government. It's quite possible, and I did every single day. And I beat them on things like renewable power, where we quadrupled renewable power. But when I became leader uh, mm. of the party, I made it very clear that my job was to get the Conservatives out of government. Mm -hmm. So but I want to out... beat lots of Conservative MPs. And mm. it, would, it wouldn't be very sensible, would it, having spent all that time defeating Conservative MPs, mm. trying to get them out of government, then to put them back in. Well, politicians not going, sometimes change their well, minds, but you've been that. very clear you're not, not going, going to do, do that. that. What about working with the Labour Party? Would you do a coalition deal with Keir Starmer? Well, th that is a hypothetical question, because we don't know what's going to happen after... It's a after, very real political uh, question well, we don't know what's well, going to happen know. after the next election, as you know. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, as I said just to one of your questions earlier, we are not going to take the voters for granted. We have got to earn their support to manage to get into a position where there are many more Liberal Democrat uh, MPs in the but next you parliament. Are, but, but you are explicitly ruling out working with the Conservatives. I know you don't want to give 100% clarity, but by implication you are open to working with Labour in some kind of coalition arrangement. No, the focus is on getting rid of Conservative MPs, and uh, I make no, but, no but apology our, for our that. Our viewers aren't daft. They can hear you're very happy to say, I'd never work with the Tories, but you don't say that about the Labour Party. So if there were to be a hung parliament and the Labour government, Keir Starmer gets you on the blower after you chat in Westminster Abbey and says, OK, I need your backing, what would your price be? But listen, that is a hypothetical question. When I'm knocking on doors around the country and I'm talking and listening to people on the NHS and the cost mm. of living on sewage and many, many other issues, they're not bringing that up. They want to know what the Liberal Democrat policies would be. And what I want to do is to win lots of seats, mm -hmm. mainly off the Conservatives, some off the SNP, mm -hmm. and then you'll have lots of Liberal Democrat MPs able to push forward Liberal Democrat policies, but, what whatever those, the combination and, of the next parliament. And, that was a pretty coy performance from Davy. Reading between the lines a bit, it looks like he's trying to present the Liberal Democrats as the rational choice for tactical voters who want to give the Tories a bloody nose without getting too caught up in the details about what comes next. That makes sense. The local elections show that people are motivated a lot more by anti-Tory sentiment than they are pro-anything else. And the Lib Dems tend to do well when people think about voting tactically. Since last week's local elections, Ed Davies' Liberal Democrats have enjoyed a pretty significant bounce. This is the latest polling from Redfield and Wilton. As you can see, Labour is down four points, taking 41% of those polled. That's their lowest share since August last year when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister. 
The Conservatives are up by one point at 29%. But the Lib Dems are enjoying their highest share since the 2019 election with 16%. That's a four-point bump since April 30th. So if you're nicking votes off the major parties and licking your chops at being looped in on a confidence and supply arrangement or a coalition government, you wouldn't name your price now or worse, imply that you would do the job for free. Keep your powder dry. But Ed Davies' reticent performance on Koonsberg hasn't stopped politicos getting their feathers in a ruffle at the prospect of a Labour-led coalition government. Here's what the ever-measured and reasonable Dan Hodges had to say in the mail on Sunday. The nightmare is looming of Starmer as a marionette PM dancing a maniacal jig to the tune played by an unholy alliance of Scottish gnats and Corbynites. In the article, he describes the prospect of a hung parliament led by Keir Starmer as a nightmare scenario. In that instance, the balance of power would fall instantly into the hands of the Nat Pack, an unholy alliance of SNP MPs and vengeful Corbynites. A Labour minority government in a hung parliament would be a good result, leading Corbynite commentator Owen Jones claimed as the full implications of the result became apparent. It's increasingly clear that the SNP can hold the balance of power after the next election, putting Scotland in prime position to pull the strings of a minority UK government, boasted Stephen Flynn, the SNP leader at Westminster. He's right. In a hung parliament, Prime Minister Starmer would become nothing more than a marionette, dancing a maniacal jig to whatever radical tune the nationalists and the Corbynites opted to play. So that's Dan Hodge's argument. But there's some reasons why it doesn't quite work. Since 2016, Conservative governments have been defined by chaos and instability, regardless of how big their majorities have been. Look at Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. Both had 80-seat majorities, but ended up being kicked out of office because of their own terribly poor judgment. And if you want to talk about who's pulling the strings of policy, look no further than the factional groupings of Tory MPs, like the ERG or the so-called common sense group, to see their impact on ministerial decisions. Basically, the coalition of chaos attack line would work better if politics hadn't been non-stop chaos for the past seven years. Mike, do you think that the public are as averse to the idea of coalition politics as they used to be? I don't think so. I think one of the things that we assume about coalitions in this country as, as a country that are used to you know, one-party governments is that there's a lot of chaos and decision and it's going to be slow. And we've lived through, as you say, this period of chaos from 2016 up until today there have been, we've lurched from scandal to scandal, whether it's, you know, Brexit in the aftermath of Brexit, whether it's, you know, Theresa May and her premiership being dominated by Brexit and her having to leave office. Evan Johnson comes in and tries to provoke Parliament. And then we have the pandemic and how Boris Johnson's government managed that. And we have the parties. We have lurched from scandal to scandal. So I don't think the public are too worried that, you know, a coalition will be any more disastrous or chaotic than what we've experienced for the last, you know, seven or eight years. So... No, I, I actually think the public would welcome a coalition. And as you mentioned, a lot of voters are driven by anti-Tory sentiments rather than the idea of, you know, being so fully behind Labour and being super excited by Keir Starmer's Labour. So I think many voters would accept the idea that, look, if getting the Conservatives out means that we get a coalition in place, that's fine as long as they're out of office. It is, it is about getting the Conservatives out of office for a lot of voters. 
what a Labour Lib Dem coalition would look like would be interesting. I, I, I you know, in terms of the rhetoric espoused by that coalition, I don't think it'd be anything exciting for us as progressives or socialists, but it remains to be seen. I mean, the article is a bit breathless and histrionic, but there's an interesting point here about whether Keir Starmer's ongoing purge of leftists from the parliamentary Labour Party reflects a deep down anxiety that MPs like Jeremy Corbyn or Sam Tarry or Diane Abbott would have power and influence in the event of a hung parliament. And when it comes to the Liberal Democrats, there are some pretty sizable tensions between what they want and what Keir Starmer has said are his priorities for government. It's likely that the Lib Dems will want something on proportional representation, which has recently been ruled out by Keir Starmer. And it's hard to see how Labour's ambitious house-building plans line up with the Lib Dems' commitment to nimbyism. The banter timeline, obviously, would be that Ed Davey makes the abolition of tuition fees his price for entering into coalition with Keir Starmer, who's had his very own Nick Clegg moment before he's even got into power but we will be keeping an eye on the possibilities of coalition politics in future shows. For now, that is all. Thanks, Mike, for joining me tonight. Always a pleasure, Ash. Always a pleasure. And we will never let Michael Walker back in this room again. Thank you, everyone, for watching this live stream. We'll be back tomorrow at 6pm for another live stream. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.